This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. It's the Model Railway Show. I'm Jim Martin. And I'm Trevor Marshall. We all love this hobby, but only the lucky few actually get to turn their passion for model railways into their profession. That's right. And today, we celebrate two people who are retiring after making tremendous professional contributions to the hobby. Later in the show, Trevor will speak with Alan Keller, whose many videos have showcased the best model railway layouts in the United States. But first, we bring you the story of another influential hobbyist, one who is putting down his red editor's pen after more than three decades with the leading North American model railway publication. Here's Jim with his guest. After 32 years of punching the clock at the editorial offices of Model Railroader magazine, executive editor Andy Sprandio is hanging up the green eye shades. In other words, he's retiring from MR. In fact, he has retired, effective at the end of August. Since joining Model Railroader in 1979, Andy has made an indelible mark. Hundreds of bylines, numerous comeback books, project layouts for the magazine, and he's designed MR's club layout, the Milwaukee, Racine, and Troy, which, if you hadn't noticed, employs the initials of Kambach's two flagship magazines, Model Railroader and Trains. And through that time, he has no doubt played a key role in shepherding MR into the digital age. Andy models the Santa Fe. He's an authority on passenger equipment and operation. In fact, that's one of the Kambach books he's written. As you would expect, he's a highly skilled modeler who gives clinics at meets around North America. Andy may be retiring, but as we're about to hear, he's not dropping out of sight. Andy Sperandio, welcome back to the Model Railway Show. As we are recording this, you actually still have a week to go. It must feel a little strange, does it? Well, Jim, it's busy, not so much strange. I've got a lot to do still. I guess they're going to wring the maximum amount of work out of you, are they? Is that the... Well, that's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know what it's like. Uh, was it a hard decision to retire? Actually not. It just got to the point where I thought work was taking up too much of my time. Can't get any simpler than that, can it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Since you don't actually have to be at the Kambach offices anymore, where are you retiring to? Are you, are you going to be heading back to your hometown of New Orleans, staying in the Milwaukee area, or heading to the epicenter of Santa Fe country? Well, we have a home here in Brookfield, actually, not too far from the Kombach offices, and I'm going to stay there. That's where I've got my layout started, and I want to continue working on that. And my wife is from this area, so she's happy to stay here. Do you hope now to find more time for your Cajon Pass layout or other life interests? Yes to both questions, yes. I, I do intend to spend more time on the layout and more time to spend doing other things. Take us back to 1979. What were you doing before Model Railroader, and how did you hook up with them? I was a graduate student at the University of Texas in Austin. I was teaching English courses there and working on a PhD with the idea of being an English professor. But then in 1977, Model Railroader advertised an associate editor position. And my friends who were, had finished their uh, degrees before me were having a hard time finding jobs in those days, so I thought I might as well apply for this thing. I had thought when I was a kid, first reading Model Railroader, that it would be a fun job to have, but I could look at the masthead and see that there weren't too many people there. So I figured my chances of getting a job like that were pretty slim. So anyway, in 77, I applied, and I didn't get hired. That was when they hired Jim Kelly. But I got a letter back saying they'd keep my resume on file and might ask me back for an interview later on. And I figured I'd never hear anything more about that. But sure enough, in 78, I came up here for an interview, and I was hired, and I started in January 79. That has to be a dream job. Be studying English. You wanted being an English professor. Obviously, you love the language, and you're a model railroader. What, what a fit. Well, yes, it was great. I, I mean, I was a hobby 
hobbyist for years before that, so I had a lot to bring to the magazine, I thought. And yes, the writing part of it and editing and everything else just fit in with what I was doing. Do you ever look back at the growth of MR and Wonderment? It always was the big magazine, but Comeback is now a publishing giant. What were significant milestones during your time there? As far as the company, some of the significant things were when we started another magazine outside the model railroad and trains field that was successful, and and that would be Fine Scale Modeler. And then a couple of years after that, we bought a magazine that was published in Milwaukee at the time, Astronomy Magazine, which is a magazine for astronomy hobbyists more than professionals. So it's still a hobby field, but it was outside the modeling field. So those two things, I think, really started to expand Kalmbach as the publishing company and lead us off into different directions. It's been a good thing for the company and even for the individual magazines. Model Railroaders certainly benefited from being part of a bigger organization that can afford to keep up with technological developments. Yeah, are all these magazine titles under the same roof? Comback has uh, magazines, for example, I believe on beating, correct? Other hobbies? Yes, everything is under the roof here now except for Discover Magazine, which was our most recent acquisition, and they are still edited out of offices in New York. Do the magazines complement each other in able to, being able to bounce ideas or techniques among the various editorial departments? Well, yes, we learn things from each other. We discover that we have some common connections. We use some of the same tool suppliers that the beating <laughs> magazines do, for example. And as I mentioned before, the uh, the technology, we certainly benefit from having the video and various digital efforts uh, going on that, that apply really across the board to all the magazines. Favorite moments at the magazine, Andy? Anything stand out? There's been a lot of things. I remember particularly fondly the uh, the operating sessions we used to have on our uh, MR&T club layout back in the 1980s before we moved to our present location. Mm-hmm. We uh, had started those, gee, I want to say 1983 or thereabouts, a fairly long time ago now. But we developed a group of operators here in town, and we were able to host operating sessions with visitors out of town. We had a kind of all-star operating session at the 1985 NMRA convention where we had people like Alan McClellan and Bruce Chubb and Tony Custer and a few others that just came over on the spur of the moment and we ran the railroad. So that was, you know, a great opportunity. Like the annual all-star game, huh? Well, so Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, looking back on it now, that led on to a lot of other things in the in the operation field, which I'm particularly interested in. And we see a lot more people traveling around the country to visit other layouts to operate. And, of course, the NMRA operations SIG has made that a big part of the national conventions. Now. And it's worth mentioning, you're, we're still going to see your byline in MR uh, on the operations column, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I'm still going to continue that monthly column. And I'm under contract as a contributing editor, so I'll still write a couple of articles every year for the magazine. And I'm still going to be editing the Great Model Railroads Annual as an outside contractor. We were saving that question, but I'll ask you right now, can you give us an idea of what to look for in the next edition of Great Model Railroads? Oh, we've got some really fine stuff, and I think most of it will be new to most of the readers. The cover story is a Baltimore and Ohio layout built by a fellow named Steve Williams. Very talented individual. He's a uh, musician who plays in the Navy Band in, in Washington. And I was uh, actually uh, mentioning operation. I was went over to his place for an operating session and saw this beautiful layout that I know nothing about. And just by a stroke of luck, Paul Dokas, uh, one of our ace photographers, happened to be along, too. So I made arrangements to have Paul photograph Steve's layout, and it's on the cover of uh, the new uh, Great Model Railroads coming out in October. A couple of other things we have in there. We've got a lineup of layouts 
scouts of all different sizes, big and small, and different scales. And there's been a, a lot of interest in industrial switching layouts over the past few years. And, and we've got three of them that each have something different about them. One of them, Keith Jordan's Santa Fe patch layout. He lives in the Kansas City area. And he's done just an amazing job of integrating this layout into an upstairs studio that he has in his home. And it looks like it was permanently built in and, you know, not a model railroad stuck in a corner at all. Another fellow actually in the same area, Tom Teeple, models the industrial, what they call the West Bottoms area in Kansas City. And there are several other people who have been interested in that area. But what's different about Tom is that he models it as it was in the 1890s with wooden cars and small steam engines and horse-drawn drays and everything else that makes that distinctive. And then we have a, a fellow named Bob Spring who models industrial railroading in Miami. And when you look at the pictures of this, you might be reminded of an HO layout that Lance Mintheim has built that we've, we've featured a couple of times. But what's different about this one is that it's large scale, 1 to 29 proportion. And it's just amazing the kind of realistic photo angles you can get with that big equipment. This is mostly an indoor layout, but he's taken advantage of the large scale and he has an outdoor section. So when the weather's good, he can open the door and extend the layout outside. Well, Andy, I've been reading great model railroads from day one. I'm looking forward to the next issue from your description. To wrap up, model railroaders really embrace the digital age. Can you tell us quickly about the introduction of digital books as well as the complete catalog of MR on DVD this fall? The book side of it is not something that I'm really involved in. That's a different department. But as far as MR, we have our uh, DVD set coming this fall, which will have all the issues of Model Railroad are complete from 1934 through 2009. So that's going to be a really uh, amazing amount of information to get all in one place. And I imagine it will allow a lot of people to free up some storage space. For, I can see a lot of recycling boxes yeah. getting heavy in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We're ahead. also doing some preliminary work to having Model Railroader available as a digital edition that you'll be able to read on the Nook Color and probably some other platforms, too. And along with that, also, we'll have a version of our website's uh, news and product section that will be available on smartphones so that you'll be able to keep up with new developments with your pocket devices. Marching with the times. You bet. In your closing editorial, you mentioned the friendships this hobby has brought you. You're probably preaching to the converted, but what sort of an accelerant do you think hobbies are for finding new friends? Well, of course, it's the shared interest, I think, and the fact that you meet people that you might not run into otherwise, that you might not have any connection with, except that you have a shared interest in operation, or you have a shared interest in prototype modeling, or you're a another fan of the Santa Fe Railroad and belong to that historical society, to name my favorite one. But, you know, that kind of thing, well, for one thing, it gives you a much wider field of people to make friends with than you might have otherwise uh, suspected. And because of the shared interest, those friendships really tend to last a long time. I've been very happy about that part of the hobby. Do you still list sea clamping as your secondary hobby? Well, it would be if I was working on the layout more actively, and I expect I'll get back to that now. Really, in the last few years, I guess my secondary hobby has kind of become research. I'm, uh, you know, studying more and more. Like anything else that you uh, get into like that, the more that you learn about a prototype railroad, the more that you want to know, so it really becomes a fascinating thing all in itself. Well, Andy Sprandio, thanks for chatting with us. Enjoy your retirement. It sounds like it's going to be a busy one. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate uh, the interest. All the best. Bye-bye. 
Thanks, Jim. And a special thank you to Andy for his work at Combat. You know, if you ever get a chance to meet Andy Sprandy, you just walk up and say hi. He's a great guy. Um, I had a chance to have a coffee with him in person at the CARM convention in Winnipeg oh, five or six years ago. And I've had the good luck to uh, bump into him at conventions as well. So. Yes, he's very approachable. And it's amazing the amount of influence he's had on people. I know for my own situation, there were a couple of key articles that he's written over the years that just absolutely influenced my thinking in the hobby. One was his San Jacinto plan in the February 1980 MR. It was years ahead of its time, I think. It was a point-to-point in a 9 by 12 foot space. With little fiddle yard. Yep, little Off fiddle yard at a time when people didn't do fiddle yards and had a logical pattern of the industries. And he introduced uh, seasonal modeling to me. I hadn't thought of that. That It was set in the orange groves and he talked about doing mm-hmm. uh, produce rushes yes. and operations thing. Absolutely groundbreaking in you know, my view. That plan was 15 years before we met, and I studied that plan probably with the same intensity you did. It was a, a favorite so. of mine. Favorite the, of mine. the other one that, again, a Santa Fe prototype, but another one that he did was the project layout from the early 1980s uh, for Model Railroader. I think it set a new standard for project layouts in terms of being realistically designed, and they've just gotten back to that with things like the Milwaukee Road Beer Line layout that they did a couple of years ago, I think in 2009. So hats off to Andy for a great run, and you know, don't drop the fires yet. Okay, and I guess we'll just have to watch the Help Wanted pages to see who's going to be applying for Andy's job. It'll be interesting if they fill it, yes. Okay. Well, just a reminder, folks, uh, you can find us on Facebook, and uh, be sure to check out the Model Railway Show for interesting links to the interviews you've heard. Yes, and some Flickr Gallery photos as well. You'll find a link to that on themodelrailwayshow.com. We've got a couple of pictures of Andy's layout up there, too, so take a look for them. Well, one lasting contribution Andy made to MR was the great Model Railroads Annual. Well, our second guest also uses the great Model Railroads moniker uh, for his series of high-quality layout tour videos. Alan Keller is also retiring. He joins Trevor now. What makes a model railroad great? For the past three decades, modelers have had 67 golden opportunities to examine that question thanks to the high-quality video layout tours offered by Alan Keller Productions. Browse the videos on Alan's website and you will find an impressive catalog, a who's who of American model railway enthusiasts discussing their high-profile, influential layouts. Each video is a professional quality presentation, too, making every episode a delightful virtual layout visit and a lasting document of famous model railways, some of which are no longer with us. Now, Alan has announced that there will be no more new layout coverage, at least for the short term and possibly for good. He's here to tell us about this decision and to offer his thoughts on filming 30 years of the best model railroads in the United States. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Alan, and thank you for doing what you've done for the past 30 years. I have a number of your productions, and I enjoy visiting these layouts over and over again. Well, thank you, Trevor. It's been my my privilege and my honor to do it, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. How did you get started doing videos of model railroads? Well, I was hired by Model Railroader Magazine back in 82 to come and start a video production operation at the magazine. And they had just gotten the idea to do this. And so I left my job as a news director and moved to Milwaukee. And not only was it a cultural shock, but it was a climatic shock because I came from Tennessee. So we began producing uh, programs for them. And I did uh, about 13 or 14 different programs. And later I moved to Hopewell Productions where I did regular commercials production. And uh, we also did steam trains, excursion videos then. That was the big thing in the mid-80s. And we were, Hopewell was one of the big producers. 
producers of Railfan videos, as they were known at the time. And then in 1980, I started Alan Keller Productions on my own, branched off from Hopewell, and began doing the shows myself. Now, many of us might think it's easy to film a layout since it's just model trains, but I know from my own experience photographing models and layouts for magazine features that our chosen subject can be extremely demanding. For one thing, few owners plan their layouts as being a comfortable place to wield photographic equipment or capture things on film. What are some of the challenges to creating a professional video of a model railroad? Well, as you probably know, one of the big hurdles is narrow aisles, and we have worked in aisles as narrow as 18 inches, which is barely enough room to fit yourself in, much less light stands and tripods and microphones and everything else that you need to do the job. That's just one of the hurdles that you have to overcome. Many layouts are not lit well, and when you come in with professional lighting that we use, people say, oh my goodness, look how good my layout looks. Well, you know, why didn't you light it up like that? So those are things you have to you work with, and layouts are maybe not designed to be photographed. They're designed to please the guy running them, which is what the whole thing is all about. So there's some different difficulties there and getting low angles and finding things that you can shoot because something is blocking your way or the backdrop doesn't extend far enough. And of course, we had a lot of tricks that we used to fix those things. We'd bring our own backdrops and hold those things up. But one of the interesting things happened years ago filming the coal belt of Bill Henderson we had to put up a backdrop to cover a door that had been painted blue and it had a beautiful layout but this door was a real eyesore and so I was behind the door holding I had to open the door and all the roll tape and so forth and I was holding the backdrop up and as the train was going by the backdrop came loose and I, and I got an idea I said well why don't I just make let's do this again and so we backed up the train and ran it through again and, and this time I deliberately brought the <laughs> brought the backdrop down at the end of the scene as the caboose passed, I believe, if I remember correctly, and said, bah, 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 that's all, folks. And so it was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment serendipity thing that <laughs> seemed to work out and be fun. That's great. Now, you've been doing these videos for 30 years, and you must have witnessed some astonishing technology developments in the, oh. the film and video world. When we started, it took six people to do what we did when I stopped with two people. The equipment was so much bigger, we were shooting on one inch, and we had one guy whose job was to just handle the tapes, one-inch tapes and the, and, the, and the tape deck. And by the time we finished, I and the cameraman were doing everything with lighting and so forth and miking and everything. We had been doing it long enough that we really cut down the, the number of people. So that was a big help. So that's, And the equipment's smaller and all that stuff, as you know. That would really help as you went into these layouts that weren't designed for all that yes. equipment and, of course, oh. weren't designed for six people. No, that's right. Now, similarly, you must have seen a lot of changes in what makes a model railroad great over three decades of shooting them. What sort of changes did you witness on layouts over that time? They've gotten more sophisticated. There's been quite a bit more emphasis on operation than what there used to be. And by operation, I mean prototype operation, operating the railroad as if it were a real transportation system as opposed to just operating, running around with no real plan. The train's just going hither, thither, and yon. There's been a, a huge increase in that. And that, I think, has come about because there's so much, well, almost ready to run, if not ready to run material that we can get now, particularly in the case of steam engines. We've been blessed with excellent plastic models from Proto 2000 and Broadway Limited and Intermountain and Atherin had some and, and diesels as well, of course. And we didn't have those before. You'd spend money and time getting these things to work. And that was part of the hobby was the tinkering. And, and it still is to some extent. And uh, I'm a tinkerer myself and scratch builder and I enjoy all those parts of the hobby. But I also 
also enjoy operation immensely. So that's kind of how I've seen the, the layouts change. It's more persists on prototype operation than perhaps there used to be. If you just got the train running, you were pretty happy before. Now, at the same time, some things must be pretty constant over that 30 years in terms of what makes a model railroad great and, and particularly great to photograph and video yeah. as you have. What sort of things didn't change over that time? It has to look good. That's the key ingredient. If it doesn't photograph well, you got a, a losing fight there. There's nothing you you can do. Well, you can do a little bit to make things look better. And we had one layout I won't mention, but when I first saw it, I was just shocked. I had seen it in pictures, and I was shocked at how it looked. It was so barren, and the backdrop was, came right up against a narrow shelf. The backdrop was out of proportion to everything else. But by the time we got that lens on it and worked with it a little bit and did a little bit of lighting, it turned out fine. But seeing it in person was a real shock to me. So there's just things you have to figure out as you go, and uh, it's not as easy as it looks, and things never work out quite as you plan. Now, were there any layouts that you did not get a chance to capture that you really wish you did? Yeah, I would have liked to have done more on George Sullius again and gone back and done his layout. Uh, that would have been, you know, for the fourth time. I did him three times, but he's redone quite a bit of stuff. And I'd like to have gone back and gotten Tony Custer's revamped, uh, his new layout, his uh, nickel plate. But that's, and he's, he and I have talked about doing it, and oh, he's disappointed, and so am I. And I'd like to have done Jim Hediger's Ohio Southern, but he was never quite ready to, to do it as he kept changing things and he had uh, some calamities that happened in his personal life and in, at his home with the sewage backup and things. But anyway, there are others that are like that that I would have loved to have done and for one reason or another didn't get to do. There's a lesson for all of us is to keep pushing on and get the layouts done. So oh, that... yeah. Because, <laughs> because, oh, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Well, I'm not going to live forever. Now, the first 42 of your productions are available only on VHS. Any plans to reissue those on DVD? Not not now. Not now. It's uh, the economics of it. Um, I just don't know what we'll do there, but they'll be available in some way, I'm sure. But whether I would sell them as DVD, at the moment, no plans to do that. Okay. Now, the timing of your decision obviously reflects the stage of life that you've reached. I imagine you're ready to enjoy at least some sort of semi-retirement. But videography has also undergone remarkable changes with the advent of Internet and YouTube and things like that. Everybody now has a uh, cell phone camera and is is a video producer, sometimes with appalling results. We know that. But is it is that a good change or a bad change for the hobby, well, do you think? I don't know if it's good or bad. It's it's just what is. It's good for the person who wants to document his own layout, but the camera phone video is not worth much. So I don't know whether it's good or bad. At least you can keep some remnant of what he had and, and look at it a little bit. But that really hasn't influenced me one way or the other. There have been uh, people who think they can edit video as well because if they can think about a computer and now they're video editors. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. I come back from the days when... You had to have $100,000 worth of equipment to begin editing video. And you certainly don't anymore, but the skills that you have to have to, to shoot and edit are still there. You have to have an eye. You have to know what works. You have to know flow. You have to know the continuity. You have to know what makes a good show. And that's the key, making something entertaining that people want to watch. And just because you have equipment doesn't mean you have those skills to produce or write something. And just like someone can get really fantastic models off the shelf now, but it doesn't mean that they're going to build a great layout. That's right. Exactly. We should point out that your videos are still available to order via your website. You're just not oh, going to be planning any new products, right? That's right. Okay. Now that you're slowing down the business, I expect you'll have more time to enjoy the personal side of the hobby. It must have taken up a lot of your 
time doing the videos, and sometimes you'd say, I really can't go to the basement and work on this now. Well, yeah, sometimes. You have a layout of your own, the Bluff City Southern, which you documented most recently in volume number 59. Uh, what are your own plans for your train room now that you're uh, going into retirement? Well, it's finished. It has been for several years. It was finished when I did volume 59 okay. about three or four years ago, but I added on to my basement, and I made it just a lounge area that I'm going to be spending effort on now to try and duplicate, at least give the ambiance of a railroad station. I've gotten a few accoutrements in there that indicate that I have a sign made that lights up, says to all trains, and I've got a, a railroad-style bench, and I'm looking for chairs and different things to put in there. So that's been fun doing that, and that's just where my operators can hang out when they're, they're not running or we're getting ready to, to start the session. So it's good. It's a good place. I didn't have anything really like that before, but I would say that you want to have a lounge for your operators if you're going to have an operating layout. And you want, yeah, I was tempted to change the layout and go into that room, but I said, no, I'm building this just as a lounge area, so I can't really change the layout and go in there. But I, I also work on a, a friend's layout, help him build structures and different things that he needs. So I'm still doing that, and I've always got something to do on my layout to fix and repair. If you operate a layout, you're gonna, things are going to get broken, and there's always something to do, and so I have a lot of fun doing that, and I had a few details here and there, but essentially I'm finished, and if I were to start over again, I don't think I will. That is, tear it out and build another layout, then I'd have plenty to do, but I don't think that's going to happen. Now, I have to ask, uh, you did photograph your own layout for uh, Volume 59. Was it an easy one to photograph, to video? Yes. As a matter of fact, it was. It was designed to photograph, so it was pretty easy to do. And one of the things that I did, the aisles, a minimum of three feet. And um, one of the things that I did uh, early on, I learned that you want to bring the fascia down below the top of the layout by an inch or two inches. And that gives you a little buffer zone there for your camera to tilt down and not be shooting off the edge of the world. And that was one phobia I, I had was I never wanted to sh show off the edge of the world. Uh, probably you can might find a few shots in uh, one of my videos where that happened, but I tried to scrupulously avoid that. Alan, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today, and thanks for the excellent coverage of so many landmark layouts over the years. Well, thank you, Trevor. It's been my pleasure indeed. Alan Keller is the owner of Alan Keller Productions, which has set the gold standard for great model railroad videos for the past 30 years. Thanks, Trevor, and thank you, Alan. You know, Alan's videos are always interesting, and if you want them for your collection, now's the time to order them, and we'll have a link to Alan's site on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. And while you're visiting our site, be sure to check out our news feed. If you know what RSS means, you can subscribe to the feed, and you'll never miss an update. You'll also find links to our Flickr gallery with photos from our guests, and, of course, you can find us on Facebook. Well, it's time for Trevor and me to retire, but only until the next show. When we return, it's into the Wayback Machine for Model Railroading by Gaslight. I'll be joined by Paul Scholes, who models Northern California in the 1890s on his SN3 Pelican Bay Railway and Navigation Company. And my guest will be Bernard Kapinski, who is bringing railroading during the American Civil War to life in his basement on his O-scale U.S. military railroad. As always, thanks to our team, tech director Chris Abbott, creative guru Otto Vondrack, and musical maestro David Woodhead. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Catch you next time on the Model Railway Show.